0: Welcome back to The Clean Water Pod, the show about the challenges and successes in restoring and protecting water quality. My name is Chef Burkus, and I'm talking to dedicated professionals across the country to build an understanding of how policy and science work together to meet the goals of the Clean Water Act for fishable, swimmable, and drinkable water quality in our nation's waters. I'm joined by my colleague, Sarah Schwartz from the EPA, to help define a couple of terms for our show today. Sarah, are you ready to talk about water quality monitoring?
1: I'm always ready Jeff.
0: (laughs) All right great. So this month's episode we're talking to Kelly Merrill from Vermont and Moni Porter from Oklahoma about water quality monitoring. So before we start how much experience do you have in the boat?
1: What do you mean in the boat?
0: (laughs) (laughs) How much experience do you have taking water quality samples?
1: Oh (laughs) actually yeah um, that's pretty much how I started my passion for water resource management. When I was in high school, I started doing water quality monitoring for a local watershed group. Shout out to Save the River, Save the Hills in Niantic, Connecticut.
0: Oh, that's awesome. I hope that they're listening. During my time at the state of Iowa, I was sort of the last option for our field guy on staff when he needed somebody to go out with him. Say, you know, his regular partner was out of town for on vacation. He was scrambling to find someone. I was kind of the last option. But That got me out into the field two or three times per year to take water samples and help us build our understanding of the waters that we were studying. And that's when I learned the phrase, a bad day in the field is better than a good day in the office. Have you ever heard of that?
1: I haven't, but I can appreciate it.
0: So I'm not necessarily that type of person. I actually am more of the office worker, but I think if that sounds like you who are listening to this podcast, you might like this kind of work so so Sarah, as we get into this episode and we and we listen to uh, Kelly and Monty, what are a couple of terms that are gonna help our listeners get more out of this episode?
1: Sure uh, so the first word I want to share with you all is watershed. I love this word because as a water professional or just someone interested in water resources, this is one of the first words you learn. A watershed is an area of land that drains rain and snow melt to streams, rivers, lakes, and eventually larger bodies of water like the ocean. Uh, Some well-known watersheds in the U.S. are the Chesapeake Bay Watershed and the San Francisco Bay Delta Watershed. And watersheds are important in the context of monitoring that we're going to be talking about for the rest of the episode because practitioners and volunteers doing this work use the watershed as sort of their map to help figure out where to target their monitoring efforts.
0: Yeah, I think the interesting thing about watershed is that it doesn't actually say anything about scale, right? You could be considered to be living in a very large watershed like, say, the Mississippi River. That is a very big watershed that I happen to live in. Or you could live in, you know, Four Mile Creek Watershed, which would be a much smaller uh, area of of land. But the concept still works, right?
1: Right. Absolutely.
0: What about the other word that we're going to talk about today?
1: The other word I want to share is water quality criteria. This is actually a nice term to include here because it bridges the previous episode we had on water quality standards with this episode on monitoring because Water quality criteria is the specific part of the water quality standard that helps us determine when a water body is safe and healthy for people and wildlife and when it's not. And that criteria essentially helps guide what we're going out in the field and monitoring for, which may include everything from the number of fish species to bacteria levels. I also wanna point out that there is quantitative criteria that we call numeric criteria. And an example of numeric criteria might be the number of micrograms of E. coli per liter. And then there is qualitative criteria that we call narrative criteria. And an example of a narrative criteria might be a statement that the water body shall be virtually free from petroleum, for example.
0: So when we talk about quantitative and qualitative, of an easy way to remember that is quantitative means quantity or counting that's how i always think of it right so generally if it's a quantitative it means that there's a number associated with it qualitative more speaking to the overall quality but something that's more using words or narrative approach so there you'll see different different aspects of that in our water quality and that is something that our water quality monitoring people will be going out and determining when they go out into the field Okay, great. Thank you, Sarah. I really appreciate defining those terms, and I can't wait until next month when we get you back and talk about something called the impaired waters list. But without further ado, here is my interview with Kelly and Monty.
2: Hi, Jeff. This is uh, Kelly Merrill. Um, I work for the Vermont Department of Environmental Conservation. I have the great privilege of getting to monitor the status and trends of Vermont's Inland Lakes for compliance with the Clean Water Act. And I started with them in about, oh, I guess it was 2000. Uh, So I've been there about 22 years now. How I really got interested in aquatic sciences, um, I'm one of those people that have always kind of wanted to, uh, knew from a very young age that what I wanted to do. Uh, I've always been attracted to water and I had the great fortune of getting to go on a, a vacation with my grandparents when I was little to Jamaica and get to go snorkeling in a coral reef. And that was a turning point for me. It was just, uh, just I just couldn't look back after that and uh, to anything non-aquatic to some extent. And then uh, when I was in uh, an undergrad, I was able to, I applied to a, um, one of the C grants research for undergraduates uh, uh, fellowships and for the summer in my junior year. And uh, I was really disappointed because I didn't get it. But then they looked under the pillows and found some extra money, and uh, they were able to call and offer me the 13th Fellowship. Um, And so that really was sort of uh, the door that opened for me, and I got to be paired with a researcher on Chesapeake Bay looking at sort of the die-off of submerged aquatic vegetation in Chesapeake Bay and that's who I ended up doing my master's degree with, um, Court Stevenson at Horn Point. And after that, I worked for EPA up in Narragansett on the Mid-Atlantic Integrated Assessment, getting to sample uh, estuaries from Maine down to Virginia. And um, in addition to that, I did some environmental consulting until I moved to Vermont in 2000 or 1999, and, uh, and then started working for the Agency of Natural Resources here in Vermont.
0: Perfect. Uh, Monty, what about you? Your professional background, where you went to school, and why water quality?
3: Hi, Jeff. My name is Monty Porter. I've got a bit of a, I've got one of those backgrounds that's taken a lot of different roads. Like Kelly, when I was growing up, my, my parents, uh, every time we went on a vacation, my dad loved to fly fish. And I grew up in northwest Oklahoma, so we would hop in the truck, pull in the camping trailer, and we would go to New Mexico or Colorado. And that's where we spent every vacation we took. And oftentimes, if there was a long weekend, he owned his own business, so we would shutter it up and go. And And we would fish and uh, hike and do things that were outdoors. And so I've always, I've always loved the outdoors. I didn't grow up on a farm, but I lived on a small acreage until – um, I was in junior high so the, being outdoors is something that just has come naturally to me. But when I went to when I went to college I wanted to uh, uh, either go to law school I thought about teaching I was a liberal arts major and uh, I kind of bounced around a little bit and wound up at a at a regional university in Oklahoma, University of Central Oklahoma and was one semester away from finishing my degree. I had a general biology class left to take as a core, as a core course, uh, university credit course to take, and fell in love with it. I had never had much interest in the sciences up till that point, point. and much to the chagrin of my parents, I said, "Hey, I've got 130 some hours. I'm going to go ahead and change my major to biology," and uh, I just switched. And it's the best decision I've 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 made from a professional standpoint in my life. I've I've spent the last 30 some years uh doing this doing sciences um i was lucky enough that my my professor in that course her husband was a a full professor at the oklahoma uh, university of oklahoma sciences center so i started doing research in academia a little bit as a as both an undergrad and once i graduated but one of the things i quickly found out over about four years of doing that is i really didn't like being inside and i went back to graduate school a lot The fortunate thing about my graduate work is, and in my undergraduate as well, is where I went to school, you really didn't centralize into one area of biology. You were required to take courses across the spectrum. So although most of my undergraduate was physiology, I took ecology courses as well. I mean, it was, it was, there was not a, you didn't, you, you had the ability to see things from a much more diverse perspective. When I was in graduate school, there was a, I needed money. I was living off a $5,000 stipend uh, annually and delivering pizza. So I needed I needed some extra money and the Water Resources Board was hiring interns um, and I applied for an internship. Um, and there you go. 20, 25 years later, I've I've still been there. I I started out uh, with my first major job with them, working with a volunteer uh, monitoring program we had that transitioned after about six months into we were just beginning to implement uh, our water quality standards. This was the late nineties when a lot of different states were heavily into putting boots on the ground to understand better through monitoring what was happening in in their systems. And I was given the, uh, I was given, I was handed over the keys to the the rivers monitoring program and said, put something together. So I started out doing that. I developed a a very diverse, uh, large streams and rivers monitoring program in the state did that for about a decade decade and a half and then went to transition into data management uh, from there transitioned to, to running our water quality standards program and eventually became our assistant chief of our division we have a, a group of about 32 scientists and we hire in a number of 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 temporary employees as well to get our work done but we we do monitoring across the spectrum groundwater surface water i've taken a transition job towards Being a scientist again for the last five years of my career, I'm still our assistant chief, but I am running our data science and data management section. So I get to play with data all day, which could not make this scientist more happy, uh, happier. And so the that's where I'm at in my career, four beautiful children and uh, live in a great small town in Oklahoma.
0: I think it's great to have the two of you on this episode because you can give us the different perspectives. You guys have been doing it for a long time, but you can give the different perspectives of being on the boat. And then able to work with the data and and move it along down the stream of the Clean Water Act as it it is. I was uh, joking a little bit with uh, my colleague Sarah at the top of this episode about how these are the people that really love to be in the boat. Maybe it's not always a boat, but a lot of times you guys are out. It's, a, it's real field work. It's it's out there taking samples, collecting samples, physically getting out into the field, uh, whereas someone like me was always a little bit more comfortable in the office. So kind of opposite of what you were saying, Monty. But in terms of when you talk about the water quality monitoring program, when you're talking about it um, you know, to your family, to your friends, what do you think are the essential elements of this program?
3: You know, I think I would have answered this question a decade ago differently. But when I look at it now, it's really four things. It's it's people, first of all. You have to have the right people in place. And a, a close second is infrastructure. The way that we monitor now, you have to, you know, it's not the old days where you you, you know, you had a you had a little Datsun truck that was, you know rusted out in the bed and you could just throw your equipment in it. You've got to have, you have to have good infrastructure now from everything from how you put instruments into the water to how you get into the water. The third is flexibility. And the fourth is scientific curiosity. Without those four things, no monitoring program really runs well. And I, I think the reason why is, you know, it's the questions we have to answer. It used to be pretty simple to monitor. When I got into things that we were just, the clean lakes program was just finishing up. And a lot of monitoring was very specific for, particular task the idea of doing big monitoring well in oklahoma anyway was not something that we were doing yet on a large scale so you need to ask the right questions that's a, that's that's part of it and that's where the scientific curiosity how it, what do i need to know what are the questions i'm trying to answer but the other thing is a lot of programs today are multidimensional you know, you're you're asking scales on scales that we before never really asked on from a temporal and a spatial aspect. A good example of spatial monitoring, for example, is one of the things we've been tasked with as organizations, is understanding water quality across our political boundaries, our states. A lot of what was going on when I first started monitoring your 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 area that you were monitoring, what you were responsible for, was typically limited. Targeted monitoring was a, was a very big part of what we did. So if you're operating on a spatial scale where you need to have, have some understanding of all the waters of your state, or you need to be able to, the 303D and the 305B programs, be able to go in and look at all of it, you, you need to have study designs that allow you to get at that. Your spatial scale has now exploded, but you can't put people everywhere. And the other thing is you need to, you need to have access to all the different waters of your state to be able to fully understand what, from a water quality perspective, is happening that's spatial temporal scales you know a lot of times uh, we would pick particular times out of the year we had index periods we would deal with Uh, what's happened over time is we've understood that either index periods have have decreased for some things but they've also expanded being able to understand if you want to understand nutrients for example what's going into a water you need to be monitoring when the flows are high you can't be sending out people uh, just to be able to access things at base flow or whenever the water's low so that the temporal part of monitoring has changed as well, oftentimes related to seasonality and, and hydrologic change. So that's what I mean by temporal and spatial. That's become much more diverse than what it was in the past. The things we try to understand like water chemistry, uh, biological communities, physical habitat, hydrology, all those things are still there. they're all incorporated that no that's really changed. We want' to understand all of those before. The intent on how you do it, it's exploded since i've been doing i've been doing this for a little more than a quarter of a century the 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 intent of how we get to that has has grown immensely over that time Uh, different program designs you know are you going out and just picking a station you go to are you using a statistical based design where you draw in monitoring locations uh using programs and then you go out and you you go to you go to things that are dots on a map that you never would have picked before uh incorporation of real-time monitoring you know, it's a uh, response-driven data collections. So you need to understand how to do data collection platforms, and that brings in some engineering aspects to it. And incorporation of more geospatial and remote sensing work—that's that has that has drastically changed since I—I I think Kelly would probably speak to this too. In the past 25 years, uh, our need to be able to hire people who understand GIS, who understand remote sensing, is is changing almost annually, and because of the way that we're now accessing information. So I think the, the, if we go back to that idea of infrastructure and people being the two most important things, one of the big things to me is that essential in our programs is we have to train our people. We need to bring in people. We have to understand professional development. We need to understand that they have to have the tools to be able to do the job they need to do. That to me, the essential elements aren't something written down on a piece of paper. It's it's become a it's become an industry in some ways because we have to be to be able to do it effectively. You have to do it right. And um, the uh, people and infrastructure is is absolutely the biggest thing next to scientific curiosity that you have to put in place. That's a difficult thing to do sometimes,
0: but it's it's even more important now. So, Kelly, it sounds to me like the water monitoring program years ago was maybe somewhat simple in that you would go out during certain times of the year and you would measure for you know a number of uh, of criteria to 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 sample against. Um, but you didn't really deviate from that. And now where there's more automated samplers that are out there for people to use, you can collect samples, you know, around the clock. Um, you can, uh, maybe get a little bit more hearty, uh, sampling, uh, equipment and, and get samples outside of the recreation season to understand what's happening, or maybe those, those seasons are, are expanding depending on where you're at. Would you say that the things have really changed and evolved in the, in water quality monitoring over the last couple of decades?
2: Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, just in the time that I've been there, um, you know, I have this table that I usually will share about, you know, the monitoring the parameters that we measure and the table, you know, starts with what we were measuring in the 1970s and it's just a couple of parameters. And then now, um, you know, each couple of years we start to get, you know, wind of other things that we should probably be monitoring. And so those, if we can afford to do them um, and we have the capacity, we add those in, and so it has gotten a lot more complicated. Um, one of the things that a colleague of mine uh, would often say about, oh, well, you know, water quality sampling, like a monkey could do it. And um, I've, you know, of course, I've had a bit of an offense to that because it's, yeah, it's gotten a lot more complicated, but. But the basic tenet, the goal of, comes back to the goal of the Clean Water Act. You know, the goal being to maintain and protect the chemical, physical, and biological integrity of the nation's waters. But how do you measure the chemical, physical, or biological integrity of the nation's waters? And to me, this is where the rubber hits the road. You know, we are the ones that are answering that question and trying to figure out, well, you know, what do you use to measure chemical integrity? What do you use as parameters to measure physical integrity? And what do you use to measure biological integrity? And we're in like different stages in each of those, uh, depending on the resource type as well. And we've done some of those things really well over the last 50 years. And some of those things are still in their very early development. And, and, And getting at integrity you know, we have criteria typically that are for pollutants that are rather straightforward to, to measure for. You know, there's the complexity of how frequently do you measure it? Where do you measure it? But ultimately, it's rather simple. There's maybe some you know, specific criteria for specific pollutants that we can monitor for. But when you get at the bigger question of the integrity, that's more of like, what is the ecological health of the system? And that's a really difficult question to answer. And we have to be more, the way to answer that question over the last 50 years has evolved. And much of the dependence, both in the US Clean Water Act and in the Europe's Water Framework Directive has moved towards or using uh, biological communities um, as indicators of that bigger ecological health question, and we've got different stages of development of bio criteria in different states using that effectively for streams. They've been using. Um, there was this big, you know, uh, move to uh, use macroinvertebrates and fish as indicators of uh, stream health because chemical parameters. Yep. All okay. right, Kelly,
0: real quick. Yeah. Macro invertebrates. <laughs> uh, yes. Everybody's heard of, can you define macroinvertebrates? Give oh. us a few examples.
2: Yeah, I guess macroinvertebrates isn't one of the most commonly used English words, but yeah. Yeah. So these are the, um, the basically the bugs that live in streams and aquatic systems and they, um, you can, if you go into a stream, you can flip over a couple of rocks, and this is fun to do uh, for kids of all ages, and uh, you'll see some little critters sort of scurrying around and uh, uh, crawling on those rocks. And then many of them um, hatch out at some point and tra- do this amazing transformation. Um, dragonflies, for instance, reason they're good indicators is they need both good habitat, um, they need good chemical conditions, they need good physical, and uh, they are the biology that lives in in the waters. And they're really good indicators because they need both in water and they often need to have good uh, places to crawl out of the water or uh, vegetation or rocks and stuff to, to be able to emerge. So they kind of need the combination of uh, just the right chemical, physical conditions. Some of these macroinvertebrates or uh, bugs are more sensitive to different environmental stressors than others. So when you don't see as many of them in a stream or a sample, um, it's an indication that there's some sort of uh, disturbance or pollution happening. Uh, in that waterway. And and Monty was talking a little earlier about stressor identification. And that's where things are also picking up in terms of the tools that we can use to better identify what might be causing that shift in that biological community.
0: So this season is all about the 50th anniversary of the Clean Water Act. And uh, one of the questions that I want to hear from you guys is, what do you think from a Large program perspective, so nationally, not necessarily something that you specifically have worked on, but nationally, what would you say are the biggest accomplishments in water quality monitoring?
3: I'm going to go back to what I talked about in the previous question. I I, I think the biggest, and to me the the from a monitoring perspective, and this is without a doubt to me the biggest the biggest accomplishment, the ability of local organizations, um, to to take part, and what I mean by local organizations are tribes, states, sub-state or multi-state planning organizations like Orsanko along the Ohio River Valley, NGOs like watershed alliances, municipalities, community monitoring programs, whoever it might be, to be able to go in and collect using really sophisticated programs, the information we need. You know, back in 1972, I think a lot of that was contained in universities. It was contained in federal, federal agencies like the USGS. There were some multi-state agencies like the Rosenko that were doing some of that work. But the, the ability to do that at a finer scale has been a huge accomplishment of the Clean Water Act. And where it's come is, it's come from the fact that we've been required to, you know, for us to be able to implement our water quality standards, we have to be able to measure water. You know, you go back to the mid nineties, there were a lot of listings that were just windshield People would assume that there was something going on. And then then it, it became the necessity of being able to go out and actually measure and measure this the the a sophisticated system in a sophisticated way. You know, one of the things that Kelly just talked about was to understand how nutrients are impacting a stream. The best way to understand that is to understand how the communities that live there, fish, macroinvertebrates, mussels, hopefully, and more and more organizations are, are starting to collect those, are reacting to that how's that st- stressor affecting them? And then there's this upscaling that you can take to how's that affect us? You know, it's not just how it affects them, but how does it affect people as well? But we have to be sophisticated in how we monitor. You can't do that at a local scale using large non-resident organizations. And it, and it the fact that state agencies and, and people and, and organizations like them now have the ability to do that in a sophisticated way, collect exceptional data, do cutting edge research themselves, uh, diverse programs, I think, is a huge, a huge climb out of where we used to be. Uh, there's been a number of people who have seen that we've got to be able to combine data sets across political boundaries. We can't continue to look at things uh, without understanding that ecological systems uh, are continuous. So one of the big things I think that's growing out of that and has happened over about the past decade is this ability to take not only large data sets, but data sets that have some discontinuity to them. And learn how to put them together and understand them together kelly started to get into this our ability to understand and incorporate ecological response and and, and understand and also put importance on it has has been a big outcome since the time i started doing this in the past past quarter century the last half of that 50 years understanding that ecological outcomes is something that's ecologically significant isn't meaningful it has has been a huge step forward in our ability to protect communities. We can set all the criteria we want to, and we can do it in laboratories, and we can try to understand how things react. And I think nutrients are what really started leading us down that path because they you don't have the ability just to go in and set a number and say, "Hey, I think this is going to work." We have to understand how the community responds and. That's required us to understand communities more holistically, Uh, looking at multiple assemblages, fish, bugs. I hope at some point in time we all can begin. I know our state doesn't do it yet, looking at mussels, but also their relationships to where they live. One of the reasons we want to look at, at different types of organisms, you can look at macroinvertebrates, which oftentimes they will inhabit microhabitats like an edge habitat, like root wads. Anybody who's gone out and fish knows that one of the best places to go in and and uh, fly fishermen especially, to, to find the things that you want to be able to put on the end of your hook or in those root wads or go and turn over a rock in those little micro habitats. But without fish, which inhabit the they they inhabit the total physical, the, the complexity of the structure in the stream, the large and the, the deep and the shallow pools, the different types of pools that develop glides and riffles and the, and the different types of riffles that are there, the different types of edge habitat. Without having both of those together, you really don't understand how major habitat changes that are caused by sedimentation are affecting the stream, as well as some sort of chemical and so-like nutrients. The, being able to understand the relation of those, those micro and macro habitats has been really important. But those, to me, are the biggest accomplishments from a monitoring perspective, is, is, is doing things on a finer scale and then how we use that information is just exploding. I'm retiring in probably five years And some of me doesn't want to. A bigger part of me wants to. But some (laughs) of me doesn't want to just because of, I think, where we're going to be at another 10 or 15. I'm excited. I'm excited for the young professionals I see coming in and the things they're going to get to experience over the next quarter century.
0: Kelly, what about you? Do you have anything to add on to the biggest accomplishments in the first 50 years?
3: I
2: think so. Um, I would say that the importance of long-term monitoring um, and the data that States and tribes and EPA have been able to generate over the last fifty years is now as Moni's talking about you know with all of these younger people coming in and they've got all these big data management skills like these days with a lot of academics that are are using the data sets that are tapping these data sets that states and tribes and EPA have generated. And being able to tell the stories that those data sets have. And we're just sort of scratching the surface in some cases to really unlocking these stories. And monitoring is expensive. And it's something that, especially if you're going to commit to it, to doing it over a long period of time. But what we're able to see from that is really important for helping us understand and create and, and drive the the proper management to achieve the intent and goal of the Clean Water Act. And academia doesn't really have the capacity to do long-term monitoring um, of the environment. That's the role of states and tribes and EPA. And um, we've only begun, as I said, to to start tapping um, and analyzing and understanding um, the stories that the data sets that we've been collecting are telling us. And it's just, um, I think that's the biggest accomplishment uh, to, to a large extent is just that we now have a better understanding of what is the current conditions of our waters and how have they been changing uh, under our watch.
0: So, Kelly, let me stick with you for this. What are one or two of your biggest career successes in water quality monitoring? So projects that you were directly involved with, either at a state, local, regional, national level, whatever that might be. But what are one or two of the stories that you kind of point to as like, I'm really proud of this moment?
2: Two years before the passage of the Clean Water Act, Vermont was one of the first states in the nation to pass a statewide Mandatory shoreland zoning law, Uh, but it was repealed before it ever went into effect. And it turns out that Maine was watching what we were doing in Vermont, and they essentially copied the law that we passed, but they didn't repeal it. So we didn't, we had pretty much unregulated development on our lake shores since then. And we were observing that this was having um, what appeared to be deleterious effects on our lakes. So I uh, initiated a survey, you know, at hundreds of sites around the state comparing the shallow water habitat off of unregulated developed shorelines and comparing that to our natural shorelines. And what we were able to, what we what that data showed was that the way that we, that development was altering the nearshore aquatic habitat and um, what's called uh, aquatic life use uh, support, which is a designated use um, in our water quality standards, uh, we found to be in conflict with our water quality standards. That, simultaneous to that study going on, my colleague Neil Kamen um, participated in the first national lake assessment at the state overdraw. And as a result of that, that was a completely different study, but had similar findings that 81% of Vermont's um, lakes were had either fair or poor condition for lakeshore disturbance. Those two findings, when they were brought to our then agency secretary, Deb Markowitz, and our then commissioner of our department, David Mears, and the attention of the legislature, the legislature, after all of this time, passed another version of the law that was passed back in uh, 1970, the Shoreland Protection Act. But one other facet that helped those uh, policymakers was not only presenting them with the problem, but we were able to come to them with the solution. So we teamed up in Vermont with Maine Department of Environmental Protection, and we conducted the same surveys in Maine, uh, looking at sites that were developed in Maine that met Maine's mandatory shoreland protection act. What we found was that it is possible to develop a lakeshore and still protect the water quality standards and aquatic habitat and biota. It just means following these guidelines that um, Maine had established. And so when Vermont legislators and policymakers were able to see there was not only this problem, but there was this solution. They didn't waste any time actually passing that Shoreland Protection Act, um, basing it, copying it off of Maine's to a large extent, uh, which Maine had ultimately copied from Vermont uh, all those years ago. So uh, that was a, a really uh, exciting uh, accomplishment.
0: So it's like a less scandalous version of uh, New England states stealing each other's clam chowder recipes. Or <laughs>
2: right?
0: uh, all very good. Um, Monty, what about you? What project or two really stands out to you when you look back on the quarter century in, in the water quality monitoring program? What are the things that kind of stick out to you as being really proud of that project?
3: Yeah, mine's a I was thinking of some some smaller ones, but but I, I think mine's probably a, a bigger scale than that. Uh, Oklahoma had always had always monitored uh, larger rivers. There had always been programs that our larger rivers had been monitored over the years, but they never had been monitored consistently. So when we started in in 1997 with a program that would begin monitoring those, uh, some of the things that were missing from that was. full understanding of hydrology there was some some usgs stream gauging that would go on but they were really the only player in town that did that but biological monitoring those large rivers had really been programmatically not something that was big usually it was either related to uh, dealing with contaminants or fisheries based research uh, but doing things looking at community structure had been done but more disparate and so two of the things we did with that program in Kelly mentioned the, the the NARS program, the National Aquatic Resource Surveys and the National Rivers and Streams Assessment, which is part of that. I was able to get on the ground floor of that with the wadeable with the streams assessment back in 2003, years and years ago. Uh, did a environmental monitoring assessment program project, which uh, for three years in Oklahoma, did one more locally in our scenic rivers area. Part of what came out of that is the relationships I developed with, uh, you said you went to Oregon State University. Did your graduate work there? I've done a lot of work. Yes, with I'm ecology. a proud beaver. Yes, proud absolutely. beaver. I've done a lot of work with the Western Ecology Lab over the years. Uh, the people who developed the EMap type style monitoring and the influence they had on me was pretty important, and it allowed us as a state to move into having methodologies. and And, and I I worked with them on the development of those, and it was part of that group. Uh, developing methodologies to get at larger braided systems and larger rivers, understand the, the reach links you need to monitor and how you monitor them, and we have got a thriving biological program now. Uh, we collect uh, over over a over a twenty year period, we've collected uh, likely over a thousand samples on these larger water bodies, and both bugs, uh, macroinvertebrates, fish, habitat. It's somewhat revolutionized how we're able to look at. Ecology is a continuum now. We'd always had good monitoring programs that looked at smaller streams. We had never been able to look at those, and that was a huge step forward. And I think the other thing I would talk about, much shorter than what I just talked about that, is I am really proud of the ability to develop long-lasting, mutually beneficial professional relationships with people. I've got a lot of friends in this community. I'd, I'd gotten to the National Water Quality Monitoring Council about 15 years ago. I would stress so much to young people coming into this. You have got to be able to integrate yourself professionally with other professionals. And you can't just do that through a screen like this. You need to go places and meet people and get to know people. You know, uh, I went up to, when I went to Lawrence here recently, I got to sit down with about four guys that I met back in the late nineties that are still really good friends of mine. Two of them are now retired. But those are long-lasting relationships. Now they've been good from friendships, from a standpoint, fantastic. But also just from a professional standpoint, you got to develop those relationships, and uh, locally and, and nationally and regionally. And I, I'm I'm proud of the fact that 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 I've had people in my that were well. I guess I shouldn't say I've been lucky. I had people behind me who stressed that. I said, man, you got to get out there and know people. You you really need to do that. So I, I think that's a huge. That's a that's that 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 is has been a success because other people invested in me that, that I've been able to, I've got some long lasting relationships that have helped me to understand who I am as a professional.
0: It's a really great point. It's something that I think you learn in your career. And like I'll get into maybe my biggest success story at some point during this series. But you know, one of the biggest successes that I was a part of, it started I, I stole an idea from a different New England state. I stole from Connecticut. I liked one of the things that they were doing. I took the concept, I applied it in a different way to Iowa, and it worked. And and that's in, the only reason why I would have gotten there was because I made that connection with someone. Um, at a national conference and you start to, you know, ideate and figure out, well, that worked over there. Why can't it work here? And, and that's really important, I think, mm-hmm. as well to young professionals to really understand how important building those networks are. When you're talking to like, again, your friends, your family, people that don't have a science background necessarily, and you maybe stumble onto some of these concepts that are a little bit more advanced biologically or or, or chemistry-wise or whatever, but you really want to make the point like, is there any really good communication examples either one of you have about a topic in this water quality monitoring program that you're able to translate uh, into something that is really
3: useful and simple that gets it to click for people? I, I've always struggled with that part of it. So the best way I found to communicate to people is to bring people into my life who can communicate to people. <laughs> it's a uh, hire good people who know how to do things like story maps and stuff like that. And and uh, can put stuff together that can commun- I will say this though I was told early on in my career by somebody not in my my division that you know it's better if you write things that are going to go on the website at a sixth grade level you have to dumb things down and I've always found that to be really pretty insulting uh, when people say that people are smart they may not be scientists but you know my dad was a uh, an electrician he was in in he knows more about about design and the way that 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 things work together than than I ever would you know from a uh, from a, uh, a building perspective i i think one of the things we fail to do sometimes is we fail to communicate the things we want to do at the level of which the information's at but i found i'm more successful with people sometimes when i when i try to communicate to them with something that's going to, that's going to mean something to them. I mean, take a, take a farmer who's losing uh hydrologic capacity. I think one of the biggest things that's happened in parts of the country and it's starting to have parts of Oklahoma too, is reintroduction of the beaver. You know, the fact that we understand now, you know, we, we, right. We, the, the, the beaver was considered to be this creature that was a nuisance. It was a pest. It, it, it led to flooding of the landscape. It did all these things, but then now we face drought and we have hydrology that won't stay stable. And we, We've lost, you know, uh, connected wetlands and things like that. That's important for people to economize what they want to do. You know, and that beaver, you know, you could go into all sorts of discussions about hydrology and, and, you know, connectivity and things like that. But really what it's about is, you know, that that beaver stabilizing the hydrologic system allows more access to water to do what you need to do. And I I use that as an example of of oftentimes we just need to meet people where they are, not make it more unsophisticated, but bring the sophistication of what we do into the the sophistication of what they do, because they're doing fairly sophisticated things, too. So that's how I would I would say is the best way to communicate. Other than that, I'm a pretty poor communicator sometimes when it comes to certain things. So.
0: Yeah, I think after this podcast gets out, you're not going to be able to use that excuse anymore, Monty. But thank you both so much for your time. I really appreciate it. All right, that's episode three. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Kelly and Monty as much as I enjoyed speaking to them. Join us next month for episode four as we talk about something called the impaired waters list. I've got a couple more great guests lined up for you to learn about that part of the Clean Water Act. If you have any questions about this or future episodes, please get in touch. You can find us on Twitter at cleanwaterpod, or send me an email at cleanwaterpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, what questions you have, and what you'd like to hear on the pod. Until next time, thanks for listening.